0: Turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter number 16. I want to welcome all of our visitors here today. What a blessing to have you here and uh, you honor us by being in our service today. I trust the Lord will work in your heart on this morning. And I want to encourage you to be back tonight for Mission Sunday. Looking forward to hearing uh, from the missionary this evening. So come be a part of that. You know, part of being a, a part of a church family uh, is that we give and labor together and invest in world missions. And we cannot do that effectively if we are not invested and involved in the mission program. And part of the way we do that is we get to know our missionaries. And so it's a vital part of our church life. Back years ago, and I won't belabor you with a bunch of stories, but years ago the church had been part of a group called the BMA. Uh, and it was sort of a cooperative missions thing. And whenever I came as pastor, we, we broke fellowship with them. But one of the reasons for that was because uh, collective missions work, for one call it that, or cooperative missions giving in the sense of just giving to an association and then letting them dispense out the money how they see fit is not a biblical model for missions. It's biblical that we know our missionaries because we're going to be held accountable one day for how we've supported them or not supported them and who we've supported. And how can we pray for them if we don't know them? Amen. Uh, Paul spoke about the church at Laodicea and said he desired to see them face to face. Uh, He wanted to know them. And that's a vital part of mission. So I encourage you to come be a part of that this evening. Uh, Hear from that missionary. We don't support the Grinstead family as yet. But of course, we're always considering a missionary if we uh, have them into our church. And so I encourage you to come be a part of that. Numbers chapter 16. I'd like to begin reading at verse 41. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you, we're sort of picking up on the tail end of a story. But I'll say a word to frame it here in just a few moments about what's been transpiring here in the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 16, verse 41. The Bible says, But on the morrow all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, saying, Ye have killed the people of the Lord. And it came to pass when the congregation was gathered against Moses and against Aaron that they looked toward the tabernacle of the congregation and behold, the cloud covered it, speaking of the presence of the Lord. It says, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of the congregation. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Get you up from among this congregation, that I may consume them as in a moment. And they fell upon their faces. And Moses said unto Aaron, Take a censer. Now this was a utensil they used to uh, carry incense and, and, and carry the fire from the altar and it says, "Take a censer and put fire therein from off the altar, and put on incense, and go quickly unto the congregation, and make an atonement for them, for there is wrath gone out from the Lord, the plague is begun, and Aaron took as Moses commanded, and ran into the midst of the congregation, and behold, the plague was begun among the people, and he put on incense and made an atonement for the people, and he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stayed. Now they that died in the plague were 14,700 beside them that died about the matter of Korah. And Aaron returned unto Moses under the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and the plague was stayed. Let's pray together this morning. Father, I love you. I thank you for loving me. Lord, I, I, I am so undeserving of your love and of your attention. Lord, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And Lord, who am I? that you'd be mindful of me. But I bless your name that you do know me, that you love me, that you died for me, that you've saved me, that you're my heavenly Father and that we can come before you and I can speak to you as a father. Lord, I can ask you to work in this congregation this morning. I confess freely my inadequacy. Lord, I confess freely my inability to affect any eternal change in this group of people today. But Lord, I believe you're able. And we've come today because we desire for you to change us. Lord, to challenge us and charge us, but to change us more into the image of Christ. Lord, I pray that you'd help us as we approach your word. May we do so with reverence and receptive hearts. And may we allow you to do a work in us that would bring you glory. If there's any lost under the sound of my voice, that wouldn't be a surprise, Lord, in a group this size, for there to be someone here that is not saved or doesn't know they're saved. I pray that you'd show them that this morning, Lord, as clear as the daylight, that you'd show them their need of salvation. And Lord, I pray they'd be saved before it's everlasting too late. Now, Lord, we commit it all to your care, and we trust your faithfulness. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. The passage of Scripture we've read in Numbers chapter number 16 is set against the backdrop of four important facts. I told you a moment ago that this is sort of the tail end of a story here in the book of Numbers. And the passage really begins at the beginning of chapter number 16. And there are four facts that will help us to understand exactly what's transpiring, exactly why the people were murmuring, why the plague went forth, why Aaron did as he did. The first fact to consider is the rebels and their mutiny. You see, this passage begins with a man by the name of Korah. He has two friends, Dathan and Abiram. And these three men decide that they're tired of the authority of Moses and of Aaron. In fact, they're tired of any authority. They really want sort of an anarchist perspective uh, to the congregation of God. And so they come to Moses, or Korah does, and says, Moses, you take too much upon you. He says, all of God's people are holy. You can tell he's lying right there, All of God's people are holy. They're all consecrated. Why don't we all just share in the burden? In other words, we don't want your authority in our lives. Korah and his companions revolted, not just against Moses' authority, they revolted against God's authority. You know, when we revolt against God's way, we're revolting against God Himself. When we are rebels against God's truth, we're rebels against God Himself. We want to separate the message and the messenger. We want to somehow uh, suggest that, well, we can uh, not accept the truth of God, but still maintain friendly terms with Him. But the Bible says uh, that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. The reality is this. You've either got peace with God or you're at war with God, one of the two. They set themselves against the authority of God. And in many ways they remind us of someone. In fact, in many ways they remind us of everyone, because they remind us of man in his natural state. Rebels and enemies of God. Romans five ten says, when we were lost, we were the enemies of God. Colossians one twenty one says, in you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. See, the reality is that this world is not just lost because it doesn't know God, it's lost because it hates God. The world is lost, not just by incident, not by tragedy, but by deliberate choice. I don't know if you realize it, man, but we walk in more divine light today than we've ever had in human history. There's more truth. Hey, there's more witness today than there's ever been in human history. You say, well, preacher, people just don't know. Well, that may be true for some folks, and it's true there's a lot of folks don't know the gospel, but there's a great many that know and choose to reject. The first fact is the rebels... And their mutiny. And the Bible describes the fate of these men. God says to Moses. And it's funny. Because here in the book of Numbers. Uh, and, and through the book of Exodus. God and Moses. They keep uh, sort of just switching places. In one place. Uh, God will be saying. Step aside Moses. I'm going to kill them all. And Moses will say. Now Lord you can't do that. They'll blaspheme your name. And then about a chapter later. Moses will be like. God kill them all. Amen. I'm done with them. And the Lord will say. Alright Moses. We can't do that. Well, I've got a plan in all this. And so God responded. To the rebels and their mutiny, with the immediate destruction of these rebels, he tells Moses, "Stand aside! I'm going to destroy them." And the Bible tells us that God did a new thing; He opened the earth up to swallow them. Now, is that not indicative of the fate of man in his lost condition? Uh, Is it not indicative of the fact that man in his lost state has no hope and no help and is always and ever dwelling on the brink of hell about to be swallowed up? Jonathan Edwards described the lost unregenerate man as a spider dangling from a thin thread of, 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 of silk that at any moment the flames licking up could break that thread and cast them into eternal damnation. Here in this passage, listen, just as surely the earth opened up underneath their feet and swallowed them. Whole. Now think with me for a moment, not just about the rebels and their mutiny, but think about the reckoning and its message. God responded with the immediate destruction of the rebels and God was proclaiming himself to be a holy God. You know, he is a holy God. Yeah. He's a God that won't tolerate sin. He won't excuse sin. He won't uh, try to reframe and redefine sin. We live in the day of ultimate spin when everything uh, is uh, coded in doublespeak and everything is propagandized and everything is warped and twisted beyond any semblance of truth and reality. But I got news for you. It don't matter how much they lie, God's still going to be the truth. There's nothing we can do against the truth of God but for the truth of God. Uh, They can try. They can cuss Him. Uh, They can lie about Him. They can try to suggest that He's a cruel and a hateful God, but it doesn't change the fact He's the same God He's always been. He's a holy God. He's a righteous God. He's a God that cannot look upon iniquity. He's a God that will not tolerate sin. He's a God that won't walk with sin. And this passage reminds us of that. Reminds us that God is a holy God and that He judges Sin, all through the Old and New Testament, were reminded of the deep connection between sin and death. Ezekiel 18.20 says, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. You say, well, preacher, that's Old Testament. Well, do something with Romans 6.23, because it tells us the wages of sin is death. And you say, well, preacher, what else do you have? Well, James 1.15 says, Sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And the reality is every lost person in their natural state is dead already in their sins, but they're headed for a second death. That's what the Bible describes it as in, in Revelation uh, chapter number 20, the second death when they're cast in the lake of fire, when they're cast into damnation. God is a holy God and He will deal with sin. And you would think the children of Israel seeing this, that it would have adjusted their attitude. You would think seeing this that they would have repented and fallen in contrition and humbled themselves before the Lord. But that's not what we find. In verse 41, we see the rejection And they're murmuring, the Bible says this, but on the morrow, all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, saying, ye have killed the people of the Lord. Isn't that just a picture of lost humanity? How many times do you hear uh, the atheist opine and say, well, you know, if God was a loving God, he wouldn't send people to hell. That's a statement of someone that's never read the Bible. That's the statement of someone that's not thinking in their right mind. You know, denying God gets you in a wrong mind. It warps your mind. And that's the statement of someone that's not thinking rationally. Because the God of the Bible has not uh, flippantly and on a whim cast men into hell. Instead, He cares so deeply about mankind avoiding hell that He sent His only begotten Son to die in their place so they don't have to die and go to hell. But still yet, instead of heeding God's warnings, The Israelites foolishly charged God of cruelty. What were they doing? Well, they were rejecting the truth of God. You know, that's still unregenerate man today in his natural state. The Bible says this in Romans 1.18, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Let me tell you something. it's It's a great weight to hold the truth in unrighteousness. And I will tell you the honest truth. You sitting here today, hey, we can't We can't one day look at God and claim the ignorance of some rank pagan living in the wilderness somewhere. We can't claim that we never heard who he was. We can't claim that we don't know who he is. We hold the truth. Do we hold it in unrighteousness? The rejection and their murmuring. And then verse 44 and 45 describes the wrath of God and the malady that afflicted them. It says, and the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, get you up from among the congregation, that I may consume them as in a moment. And they fell upon their faces. God declares wrath on the rejecting Israelites, and He sends a plague to consume them. In other words, the wrath of God was abiding on them. It's arresting, it's gripping the way the Bible just says it, just drops this statement in your lap in our text. It just says the plague is begun. In other words, they could look around and see men, women, and children dying because of Israel's rejection of God. And I'd remind you, hey, if we'd see things the way God would see things, we'd look around and we wouldn't just see a bunch of seething mass of humanity floating around, bouncing like pinballs in a cosmic pinball machine, but we'd look around and see the plague is begun in our society. Sin is in motion in our society. All around us, people are dying in their trespasses and sins, dropping off in. To hell as surely as Korah and his men dropped into this pit. The plague is begun. I'd remind you for humanity, the plague is begun. The Bible says in John chapter 3, verse 36 He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Most people walking the streets have sort of a funny paper's theology where they think one day they're going to get to heaven and be stood in front of a large set of scales, their good works on one side and their bad works on the other. There couldn't be anything less biblical than that that perspective. The Bible declares the lost man uh, to not be waiting until he dies and gets to heaven to find out, uh, but that even right now he's already dead in trespasses and sin. Not that one day we're going to get to heaven and find out how good we did and find out how close we got, but that if we're lost without Christ, that even now the wrath of God abides on us. Say, well, preacher, if a person dies in their sins, they'll be under the wrath of God. If they're in their sins, they're under the wrath of God now. They're lost without Christ. They're under the wrath. They don't have to wait to find out one day. Uh, Listen, when you walk up down the street, when you witness to people, when you bump into people at the Walmart, don't pretend you don't go to Walmart. When you go to the Walmart, bump into people, when you give them a gospel track, if they're lost, the wrath of God is even then abiding on them. It's not maybe one day, even then at that moment, the wrath of God is abiding on them. Now, we come to our text this morning, and we find a fascinating event that transpires. Here the plague is sweeping through the camp. 14,000 people have died. People are dropping left and right. The wrath of God is dispensing the glory of God, is slaying men on every hand. And into this breach stepped Aaron, the high priest, with a censer of incense in his hand. Moses looks over at his brother Aaron and he says, we've got to do something. Run right now, get the censer, put fire in it, put incense on and go and stand in the breach that this plague creates. You know, in many ways, he reminds us of the Savior. Listen to how he's described down in verse number 48. The Bible says it this way. He stood between the dead and the living and the plague was stayed. If that don't sound like Jesus, I've never heard a description of it. Because in many ways, when I see Aaron standing there with censer in hand, being the the shield and the wall and the salvation of all those that have taken refuge and shelter behind him, I see a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ who died on Calvary and is now the only hope and the only help for mankind. See, the truth is, on this day, Aaron made the difference can I say in your life and in mine, the only thing that can make the difference is Jesus Christ. He stands between the dead and the living. I want you this morning to notice three ways that Aaron reminds us of Christ and then I'll be done. Let me say number one this morning. Aaron reminds me of Christ. I understand Aaron was a a human being. He was the brother of Aaron. He was not Christ. He was not a theophany. Uh, But he's a type of Christ. He reminds me of Christ, number one, because of his possession. Now, we're not told what kind of things he owned. We're not told the clothes that he's wearing. We're not told uh, what uh, livestock he may have owned. We're not told how much money he may have had. But what I mean is, in this moment, he possessed everything he needed to be able to rescue those who were in danger of succumbing to the plague. Notice three things. Number one, notice the endorsement he possessed. The Bible says this, Moses said to Aaron, verse 46, Moses said unto to Aaron. Now you say, well, preacher, that's just boilerplate language. It's just describing what occurred. Yeah, that's true. But it's also reminding us that Moses uh, did not look at some random individual that Aaron was not chosen at chance. In fact, he was the very high priest of God. It was his office. It was his calling. It was his commission to be the one that administered the things of God. And Moses doesn't turn to just anybody. He turns to Aaron and says, Aaron, you are the only one that can save these people on this Can I remind you that the Lord Jesus... Uh, He did not just transcend to a place of significance in the economy of God through good work and sheer force and determination of will, but in fact, He is God Himself. That He was the chosen of God. That He was sent from God. That's how He's described in the book of John. That He was sent from God. That Jesus Christ was not just any person. He was not just any preacher. He was not just any prophet. He was not just any teacher. But He was in fact the chosen, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed One. The One sent from God. God, the only one that could get the job done for humanity's problem. Amen. I like how he's described in Acts chapter number 2, Peter's preaching. And he says this, ye men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, they knew who that was. But he says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. In other words, he was not just some person. He was not just a good person or a great person, but he was, in fact, the chosen of God, the approved of God. Three times in the gospel record, a voice sounds from heaven. It's the voice of God, the Father. And in Mark 1.11, we have one such example. It says there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou, speaking of Jesus, art my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. There on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, Peter uh, and James and John, they see Elijah and they see Moses there on the mountain. Peter takes that big size 12 fisherman's sandals, sticks it right in his mouth. He says, uh, this is a good place. Let us build three tabernacles here and just stay up here. Well, he didn't understand when he did that, he was putting uh, the law and the prophets on the same level as the revealed Son of God. Can I remind you, hey, the law and the prophets were a means and a purpose to support and predict the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, They are subject to the Lord Jesus Christ. He fulfilled those things. They are not the preeminent thing. He is the preeminent one. The Bible describes a great cloud overshadowing them and that same voice speaking forth and saying, this is my beloved son. And then God says this, hear ye him. In other words, he's the one. He's the one. He's the only one. Can I remind you even today, he's still the only one. He's the only help. He's the only hope. I see the endorsement that he possessed, but then I see the payment he possessed. Moses looks at Aaron in verse 46, and this is what he says. Take a censer and put fire therein from off the altar and put on incense. Now, this is fascinating. When we think about the propitiatory sacrifice of Jesus, when we think about the payment that was made for our sins, we always associate it with the notion of shed blood. And that's biblical. That's appropriate. Certainly, there were far more sacrifices in the Old Testament that were the shedding of blood than there were other types. But there were other types of sacrifice. Ironically, the meat offering was not a shed blood sacrifice. Uh, not only the meat offering, but the drink offering. Uh, there was a uh, Bible talks about salt offerings that were given. And then there was what the Bible describes as the incense offering. Part of the responsibility of the high priest was to take incense uh, that was uh, crafted and concocted by a very specific recipe that God gave in His Word. And every day he would bring this incense and put it on the altar of incense. And he would offer an incense offering to the Lord. Here in this passage, the payment that is made for the sins of the people is not that of the shed blood, but it's that of the burnt incense. What does that suggest to us? Well, it reminds me of this. When Christ died on the cross of Calvary, He paid a payment for us. And two things are in view here in this passage. It's interesting. The incense seems to suggest and speak of two things. The book Revelation, the incense is described as being connected to the prayers of the saints. But elsewhere in the Bible, oftentimes, part of the sacrifice that was given to God was the smell that would from it. And over and over again, the Bible describes God as smelling the sacrifices and being pleased with the odor of them. I was talking to the missionary that's going to be here tonight. He's a missionary to Argentina. and So naturally we got talking about steak. Amen. Because that's of the Lord. and, And we were talking about it. And, you know, they say that smells are most closely associated with memory uh it is a powerful sense, it is a powerful sensation and experience. And we, we were talking about that good steak that they have down there in Argentina. Man, there's nothing better than smelling a steak being cooked. Amen. Oh, heaven help, we can't get more amens than that on that statement. Amen. Rib eyes, rib eyes. There's just something something about it, man. The smelling's almost half as good as the eating, amen. And in the Bible, it describes whenever these bullocks would be offered and whether when these goats or lambs would be offered and, and given to the Lord, when they'd be burnt on the burnt offering, that God would smell the smell of those sacrifices being given and it would please Him. It denotes the idea of God approving of something and being pleased and receiving something. So you say, well, preacher, that's interesting. But what does that have to do with this and Aaron and the censer and the fire and the incense? Well, it reminds me of this. When Christ paid our sin debt, it was the payment of a sinless life, of a life that God was pleased with. Whenever God looked down and observed the earthly ministry and life of the Lord Jesus, He was as Paul or as Peter says, He was approved of God. He looked and saw that He was sinless. The Bible describes in three places the sinlessness of Jesus, that He did no sin and He knew no sin and in Him was no sin. The Bible says God hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And when God looked down at the sinless life of Jesus, He took in the odor of His righteousness righteousness and was pleased. Ephesians 5, 2 describes our commitment to Christ in these terms. It says, walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling savor." God was pleased and approved of the life of Christ. Should be no wonder in John eight twenty nine, Christ himself said, I do always those things that please him. So in other words, the reason that Aaron could stand in the breach is because he had the incense. And the reason that Christ can stand in the breach and save us from our sins is because He has the incense of a sinless life. The problem with you wanting to die for your sins is uh, you already owe a debt for your sins. Uh, and God is not interested. He doesn't accept the currency of your good works. He accepts the currency of the righteousness of Christ. That's what, what gains purchase With Him And Christ is able to save us because He had a sinless life. And then the fire. The fire always reminds us of God consuming a thing. It's associated with God's judgment. It's associated with God's wrath. It's associated with God consuming and exhausting something and absorbing something. The fire always reminds us of God's judgment. It reminds me of this. He not only had the payment of a sinless life, but He had the payment of a sacrifice life. You know, had Christ come and lived for three and a half years uh, amongst humanity, walking in public ministry in sinlessness and perfection, and then ascended to heaven, it wouldn't have done any of us any good. You know, the Bible describes in the book of Hebrews how that, that veil that stood between the holy place and the holy of holies, how that, that was a type and picture of the flesh or the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. If you were to look at all of the particulars, time would fail us now to do it, but all the particulars of that veil, the pattern of it and the materials of it and the dimensions of it and the function of it, they all remind us of Jesus in His perfect humanity, how He lived sinless and perfect before us. And still the veil barred entrance into the holy place. You see, a way was not made to God until that veil was rent. And so likewise, if Christ had come and lived sinlessly and then ascended to heaven, all it would have done is galvanize the condemnation of the law, reminded us that we are hopeless and helpless without Him. But He did not just ascend to heaven undisturbed and unafflicted and, and unassaulted. Instead, He marched up Calvary's hill, died in our place on the cross of Calvary. His flesh was rent. The veil was rent. He died in our place. It's not just enough to sit back and observe speculatively the beauty of a sinless life. And you know, much of Christianity, that's really what's involved with it. It's about sitting back and beholding the beauty of of what they perceive Jesus to be and then suggesting that something in their life is modeled after it. But that's not Bible Christianity. Bible Christianity is not just sitting back and and observing the earthly life of Jesus and saying, oh, what a beautiful and what a wonderful and what a splendid event that that was, but rather it's seeing uh, in His death on the cross of Calvary yourself, recognizing your own helplessness and hopelessness and coming to Him and allowing His death to stand for your death so that His life might stand for your life. It took a sacrificed life. I see the payment that He possessed, but then I see the atonement He possessed. The Bible says this, Moses said unto Aaron, verse 46, Go quickly unto the congregation and make an atonement for them, for there is wrath gone out from the Lord. The plague is begun. The word atonement is interesting. The Hebrew word kaphar, it means to cover same language is used when Noah is building the ark in the Old Testament. The Bible talks about him sliming it with pitch. It's the same word. It means a covering that seals things, that protects things. And all throughout the Old Testament, the word that is consistently used uh, regarding man's sin being dealt with and taken care of is the word atonement. That whenever the blood was shed, God would cover their sin for a year until the next year came around and the day of atonement came and another sacrifice had to be made. Here in this passage, it's being used in in the context of their sin for murmuring and rejecting God's truth, being covered and then being spared and then being pardoned because of their iniquity and their sin. But you know, in the New Testament, there's only one time that the word atonement is used. It's in Romans 5.11. It says, not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom we have now received the atonement. Only one time is that word used. You say, preacher, why is that? Well, because God deals with our sin differently in the New Testament than he did in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, righteousness was imputed to man and man's sin was atoned for. In other words, all these things, and I don't mean to imply that a person could lose their salvation. They couldn't because the promises of God never failed. Uh, But in the Old Testament, all these were what we might call transitional states. God looked at them and because of their faith, He granted to them righteousness. But He didn't robe them in righteousness and transform their life by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And likewise in the Old Testament, He uh, he pardoned their sins uh, in the Old Testament because of the blood that was shed and because of their faith in Him. And certainly that was final and secure as it had a view towards the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary. But in regards to Israel's religious national state, that thing had to be revisited every year. Paul says in the book of Hebrews that in those sacrifices, there's a remembrance again made of sin every year, that those sacrifices could not make the comers thereunto perfect, for then would they not cease to have been offered. In other words, this was always sort of a transitory state that they found themselves in. But in the New Testament, we find God uses a new word. And it's the word propitiation. The word propitiation does not simply mean to cover, but it means to cleanse or wash or take away. In other words, in the Old Testament, God would cover their sins. And and I would say nationally, He did this in response to their giving of sacrifices. Spiritually, He did this with a view towards the ultimate sacrifice of Christ on Calvary. But not until the blood had been applied to the mercy seat in heaven, not until the price had been paid, not until the lamb had been slain, could He affect righteousness in their life in a practical way. Now, here's what He's done. He's taken our sin away. I like how the New Testament describes it in Hebrews. It says, their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. This word propitiation, we find it three times uh, in the New Testament, or two times in the New Testament. Uh, it says in 1 John 2.2, 2, He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. First John 4.10 says here in His love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, I misspoke a third time. It is found in Romans chapter three, verse twenty-four. Begins this way, describing us as saved people. It says, "Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood." You say, what does that mean, preacher? Well, it goes on to describe it: to declare His righteousness for the remission, the taking away of sins that are past through the forbearance of God; to declare, I say, at this time His righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. In other words, Aaron could make the difference because the price had been paid and the atonement that he possessed. And I'd remind you, Christ can only, he's the only one that can make the difference because he's the only one with the sinless life and the sacrifice life that is now risen victorious from the grave and has the means to redeem mankind. I think because of his possessions, he reminds me of Jesus. But not only because of his possessions, he also reminds me because of his position. Listen to how he's described in verse 48. And he stood between the dead and the living. And the plague was stayed. Now, I could spend a great deal of time talking about what occurred when he died in our place on Calvary. And certainly in that moment, he did. He stood as a breach between the dead and the living. But I just want you to think about Aaron and the function of him that day and think about Jesus Christ. For instance, on this day, Aaron, he is the deliverer. The only hope of salvation in that camp was found in Aaron. wasn't in Moses that day. It wasn't in Caleb that day. It wasn't in Joshua that day. wasn't in any of the other elders that day. It was Aaron and him alone. If you didn't come to Aaron, you could not be saved. Man, that reminds me of Jesus Christ. He is the only way. Bible says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Well, I just sometimes don't know how the Bible could be any clearer. He is the only way. He is the only hope. He is the only help. And Peter said it this way in Acts chapter number 4, verse 11, when he described Jesus, he said, This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. And then he said this, Neither is there salvation in any other. Let's just stop and drink that in for a moment. There's not salvation in you. There's not salvation in the Pope. There's not salvation in some charismatic preacher. There's not salvation in some five-star evangelist. There's not salvation in some religious guru. There's not salvation uh, in the banker down at the bank. There's not salvation in the broker down on Wall Street. There's not salvation in the President sitting in the Oval Office. There's salvation only in one person. Neither is there salvation in any other. Here's why. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There's no other name because no one's ever done what the man that bore that name has done for us. He's the deliverer and the only hope is found in him. But I'd say not only on that day is Aaron the defender, the deliverer, he's also the defender. You see, his presence held back the plague. Wherever Aaron was, the plague could proceed no further. Man, what a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ and His presence as our Savior in our life. I quoted a moment ago, but the Bible describes those that have put their faith in Jesus Christ and their relationship with God in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds will I write them and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Paul spends a great deal of time in the book of Romans describing the deep connection between law and sin and death. That The law is not unrighteous, the law is holy and good, but we're carnal, sold under sin. And so all the law could speak to us was not righteousness, but retribution. It could not speak to us sanctification, but sin. It could not speak to us consecration, but condemnation. All the law could do when it assessed our life was remind us that we were dead in our sins, hopeless in our iniquity, lost in our wickedness, estranged in our rebellion against God. Because of that, all the law could do was expose their sin. And because of that, the law became not an arbiter of life to people, but an arbiter of death. All it did was remind and show and disclose and condemn them in their death. But the Bible says this, that Jesus Christ has become the end of the law unto righteousness for everyone that believeth because He dealt with sin at its heart, because He dealt with sin at its core, because He came and in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, Uh, because He came and what the law could not do uh, in uh, that it was weak through the flesh, He did. God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, He condemned sin in the flesh. And now the law proceeds no further than Him, but sin and its power proceeds no further. I understand we can seed ground in our life. I understand we can engage in sin. I understand the flesh still has a sway and a hold on us, but understand in regards to our lost condition, in regards to the condemnation of God, hey, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk after the Spirit, not after the law. The reality is this. When I got born again, the jurisdiction of the law ended in my life. could no longer lay a stake and a claim on my life. The plague ends where He stands. If we want it to end in our life, we have to come to Him. He's the defender. But then I thought about this. Aaron on that day, he was the deliverer and the defender, but he was the divider. The Bible says he stood between the dead and the living. And I want you to hear me well. Life and death depended on which side of Aaron a person was standing on. Those on the wrong side were dead. Not they were dying, they were dead. Not they might die, they died. They were dead in that moment. Those standing on the right side of Him, they lived. They weren't just getting better. They weren't just convalescing. They weren't just slowly improving. But they were alive and healthy and well. Can I remind you that that's the stark distinction spiritually speaking, in all of humanity today, which side of Jesus are you standing on? Have you bowed the knee for Him? Have you accepted Him as your Savior? Have you confessed Him as your Savior? Have you believed on Him? If you have, then you have life, and life more abundant. But if you've not done those things, then you have death, nothing else, nothing more, and nothing less. First John 5.11 says it real plain, this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Put the emphasis where God's putting it. He's saying, this is the record. We have the record of God. And what's the record of God? What's the testimony of God? God's testimony is, I've given you life, but I've given it to you in my Son. Therefore, he that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. It's really that simple. You'll never get life unless you come to Jesus Christ. But once you've come to Him, you've believed on Him and received Him, you have life. You say, Preacher, I don't always feel like it. It don't matter. It ain't about your feeling. It's about His faithfulness. Well, Preacher, I just worry sometimes there ain't any proofs in my life. Well, I'm glad it ain't about your proofs. It's about His promises. It's about what He's done and what He's said. And it's a matter of taking Him at His word. He is the divider. And all of humanity is divided concerning Jesus Christ. Uh, the greatest division that there is in life is which side of Him do you stand on? Yeah. Nothing else matters in your life in comparison to that. Doesn't matter the wealth you have or don't have, the talents you have and don't have, the health that you have and don't have, the good looks that some of us have, and doesn't matter. What matters is which side of Him are you standing on. Amen. By the way, let me just stop and preach to a saved person here for just a moment this morning. Not a particular one in mind, but to the saved individuals today. In your life, what is going to make the difference is which side of him you're standing on likewise. I don't mean whether you're saved or not saved. I mean, if you are saved, are you standing in opposition with him or are you kneeling in obedience to him? You see, that's going to make the difference whether your life is corrupt, whether your life is heartache and trouble and sorrow, or whether it is life and life more abundant. I I think He reminds me of Him because of His position. And then finally, and I'll be done, He reminds me of Jesus because of His protection. See, on that day, those that stood on the right side of Aaron were saved. And I'm glad to report to you, even to this very day, those standing on the right side of Jesus are saved. Those that have come to Him in the way that the Bible prescribes, confessed himself a sinner and asked for forgiveness. Those that have come to him knowing who he is and knowing who they are and bowing the heart before him, standing on the right side of him, not they're on their way to getting saved, not maybe someday if they hold out they'll get saved, not they've made the first payment of a lengthy installment plan, but they are saved immediately and eternally just as surely as these people were saved on this day. Notice three thoughts about it. Number one, I want you to notice his protection was free. Nowhere in the Bible do we have a description of Aaron setting up shop and collecting payment for them to get on the other side of him. We don't find him setting up a toll booth to get to the other side of the incense. Instead, he just ran out into the midst of the congregation and said, here's help and here's salvation. Get behind me and you can be saved. Man, what a, what a picture of Jesus Christ that is. I could quote, I guess, a hundred verses. Well, I don't remember a hundred verses, but I could read a hundred of them to you. That would be examples, but let me just read two that are back to back to you. For by grace, Ephesians chapter two, verse eight, for by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves. Boy, we get hung up because we, we're really about ourselves. Yeah. I'm glad. Hey, God knows what, what the human condition needs. He, he, he orchestrated salvation in such a way that it'd never be about ourselves. Not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of, not of works. Not of works. Not of works. It just says it once, but I always hear it about three or four times when I read it. So I, not of works, lest any man should boast. And to this very day, the salvation of Jesus Christ is free. His protection was free. Notice number two, His protection was full. The Bible says He stood between the dead and the living. The difference was not just sickness and health. It was life and death. It's it's not just that He stood there and those on this side felt a little poorly and those on this side felt a little bit better. It's that it was literally the stark difference between life and death. And if you could get on the right side of Aaron... Before the plague got to you, you would live. You wouldn't even be touched by it. The Bible describes, I like the language, just as starkly as it says the plague has begun. Whenever Aaron shows up, it says the plague was stayed. You know what that means? Stopped. I'm talking about plumb, full, stopped. It did not just slow its progress. It did not just stall its march. It stopped right where it was. And can I remind you that when Christ forgives a man, he forgives him and saves him fully, fully. I'm glad, man. I'm glad it's not predicated on my obedience. I'm glad it's not predicated on my stick I'm glad it's not predicated on my personality, but it's all about him. One of my favorite verses is John 5, 24. I always, when people are struggling about their salvation, I always read this verse to them. It says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word. And that doesn't mean just to hear it like a, like a racket or a noise. But it means to hear it and understand it. In other words, here's what Jesus has said about himself and about us and about God. That You've heard that. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me. That's key. In other words, believing trusting in, coming to God based upon the truth that's been given from His Word. Now, you and I sit here, and how can we approach unto God? Well, based on the fact that God said, I will and have accepted the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary. And so we say, okay, God, you said that, so I'm going to take you at your Word. I'm going to believe you, the Bible says this, hath everlasting life. Not might get it, not has a portion of it, hath everlasting life. You say, well, preacher, maybe I'll lose it. No, the Bible says you shall not come into condemnation. Uh, can I remind you, that statement is just as concrete as the first statement. When it says half everlasting life and it says shall not come into condemnation, the second phrase, shall not come into condemnation, is written by the same immutable true God that said hath everlasting life. In other words, the same God that said I'll give you everlasting life is the same one that said I will never take it away from you and you will never lose that. Everlasting life. You see, if we just read the Bible and take the Bible at what it says, it'd clear a lot up. There's a lot of people running around. Well, can we lose it? Can we keep it? Do we persevere? Do we endure? What if this? What is it? I like what Lester Olof said one time. He said, "What?" I like a lot of things Lester Olof said one time. Lester Olof, he said one time, what kind of life does God have? The answer, of course, is eternal or everlasting. God, He's from everlasting to everlasting. He doesn't have temporary life. The only life He's got is eternal life. If you got your life from God, you got eternal life. Because it's the only kind He has to give. And then it says this in John 5, 24, Shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. I'm glad to report today, if we'll come to Jesus, He won't just make us feel a little better. He won't just sort of spruce our life up a little bit. He'll take us out of the dead camp and put us in the living camp. He'll take us out of the dead column and put us into the living column. His protection was full. But then I like this, his protection was final. The Bible says in verse 48, the plague stayed. He didn't just heal the sick, he eradicated the disease. He didn't just treat them, he dealt with the disease, its very self. You know why I know that I'm saved and will always be saved? Not because I feel saved, not because I act saved, not because I look saved or smell saved or sound saved, but because when Christ died on the cross of Calvary, he put an end to the authority and jurisdiction of sin in my life. Now I, I, I can still, in my free will choice, engage in sin, but no longer those charges were answered. they can't be brought up again. If the devil, and he is the accuser of the brethren, and he does endeavor to try to accuse us before God, but every time he comes, like the old song talks about, when he brings up our sins to God, God says, what sins are you talking about? They've already been dealt. They've already been answered. They've already been addressed. He didn't listen. He didn't just stymie the bleeding. He's dealt with the disease. Romans chapter 6 describes this, says, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Romans chapter 5 verse 15 describes the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. It says, but not as the offense, talking about Adam's sin, not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one, Adam, many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation. But the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace. Hey, I didn't, just, I didn't just receive barely grace. I received abundance of grace. Abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus In other words, he dealt with it in finality. John chapter 10 says this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my father's hand. Paul said in Ephesians 430, we should not grieve the Holy Spirit of God whereby we are sealed unto the day of redemption. I ain't just saved, man, I'm sealed. You listening to me? I ain't just saved, man, I'm sealed. The salvation I got came with a sealant on it. Amen? It came with God's imprimatur. It came with God's guarantee. He has, as the songwriter said, stamped His image on my face. Uh, He has uh, wrote me in in His nail-pierced hands. He has graven my image upon His heart. He has placed my name in the stones that rest on the effort on His shoulders. He has placed me in Him. And as such, my salvation is as secure as He is. I'm in Christ. The devil wants to get to my salvation, but he's going to have to deal with Christ first. We already know how that ends. I'm glad to report to you today, Aaron, he stood between the dead and the living, but even to this day, Jesus stands between the dead and the living. He's the difference. If you don't know Him, you're dead in your trespasses and sin. If you know Him, you have life. Not just barely life, abundant life. Not just barely grace, but abundant grace. And so it really comes down to that simple, fundamental question. Do you have the Son? He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Do you have the Son this morning? Have you come to Him? Have you believed on Him? Have you confessed yourself a sinner and asked His forgiveness? If you have, you can rest in knowing that the plague has stayed. But if not, hey, come to Him today. He's still got that sacrifice. He ain't on the cross anymore, but the blood is still applied. And there's still hope and there's still help. Some of y'all are praying for loved ones. I'm praying for loved ones. People, neighbors and friends and family. People that I know that I'm burdened for. Man, it helps me to know that He still stands between the dead and the living. If they'll come to Him, He can still save them today. You might be here burdened for someone that you love and care deeply about. In a moment, you're going to have a chance to come to the altar and pray for him. I encourage you to do it. Because He still stands between the dead and the living. Uh, you might be here today lost without Christ. You say, Preacher, I know that I'm lost. I don't wonder if I'm lost. I know that I'm lost. Can I tell you, He still stands between the dead and the living. Come to Him today and He can save you. He's still the divider. He's still the deliverer. He's still the defender. He's still our only hope and only help. But bless the Lord, He is a present help in time of need. Let's bow together this morning. The musician's going to come and play. I want to invite you to come this morning. If you're one of those that we mentioned a moment ago, your heart is burdened for someone in your life. You know that they're lost or you suspect that they are and you're troubled. I want you to come down to the altar and I want you to bow before the Lord. I want you to call their name out to God and ask God to work in their heart and in their life. Uh, Connie, stay here and play for a moment, would you? will not you come and pray if God spoke to your heart? And you might be here today lost. I don't know. Wouldn't be a surprise, man. I mean, listen, there, there's 12 walked with Jesus and one of them was a devil. It wouldn't be a surprise in a group this size at a church for somebody to be here lost without Christ. Can I tell you, you don't have to leave in that condition. I want to ask you this. If you're here lost without Christ, would you slip your hand up and let me pray for you? I won't embarrass you. I won't call your name or make you stand up. I just want to pray for you. Would you let me do that? If you're here lost, would you slip your hand up right now? Let me pray for you. Karen, go ahead and play for us. Right now, you say, preacher, I'm here. I'm lost. I'm not saved. I know I'm not. Please pray for me. Would you slip your hand up and let me pray for you? I'm looking around the room. No one else is but me, but I'm looking around. Preacher, I'm lost. Could be a little person. Could be a grown adult. Could be a young person. Could be an older person. she would say, Preacher, I believe I'm lost today. I don't want to be. Slip your hand up. Let me pray for you. Could be somebody in the altar. I don't know anyone's heart. If you're in the altar, stick that hand up. Likewise, we'll pray for you. If God touched your heart, hey, what about that person that's standing on the wrong side of Jesus today? Wonder if anybody's praying for them. Wonder if there's anybody that has lifted their name to the throne room of God today. I hope you'll do that today. That person that you're burdened over, that person that you see no light, no witness, no sign of God in their life, won't you come and pray for them today? These are praying. We have all the time we need. God touched your heart. I hope you'll meet him down in this altar.